Welcome to the Corecast, where we interview Jewish leaders and discuss issues relevant to the Jewish community in Canada and around the world. I'm your host, Richard Rabkin. Welcome, Corecast listeners. I'm your host, Richard Rabkin. I have the honor of having with me today Rabbi Mordechai Rothman. Rabbi Rothman is the executive director of High Lifeline Canada, an organization that helps children and families with illness. Um, Rabbi Rothman, thank you very much for coming. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's an honor to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, to join you today. Okay, great. So uh, why don't we talk a little bit about you before we get into the exciting work that High Lifeline does? What is your background? You know, where did you grow up? Schools you went to, and how did you kind of make your way to High Lifeline Canada? Uh, sure. So uh, I was born in Denver, Colorado, and uh, I. My father was a rabbi of a shul, or sorry, my father was a, um, a rabbi on campus at Hillel. Uh, and then um, being the rabbi life, it's, it's kind of like you travel a bit. So um, born in Denver, moved to Worcester, which is a small town outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, and then by the time I was nine, we moved to Toronto. Uh, my father was the executive director at Or Sameach, uh at the Bay in Thornhill. Uh, so an ex- executive directorship is kind of in my blood. I grew up with seeing that my whole life. Uh, you know, that being said, uh, was an Eitz Chaim. Uh, I'm an Eitz Chaim, Eitz Chaim graduate, and uh, went from Eitz Chaim uh, to Neir Yisrael. Um, had a brief stint in uh, Chicago and uh, in Yeshiva and Tells in, in Chicago for 11th grade, but. Uh, basically didn't last very long. Okay, we won't ask any questions about that. Brief stint, we'll just move on. Yeah. And uh, went to, uh, graduated in Israel, uh, spent a couple of years uh, learning in Israel, uh, at Torah's Moshe and uh, Eishet Torah. Um, at the time, my father actually uh, left Orsamath and switched to uh, working at Eishet Torah, so I, uh, I went to, I learned in the old city in Eishet Torah for a couple of years. Uh, got married very young, at the uh, age of 20. Wow. And, wow. Uh, uh, immediately went to, uh, moved to New York, uh, and went to Yeshiva University to uh, to do my uh, smicha while I was in, uh, at YU. Uh, smicha at YU is a four-year program, uh, and the last year, uh, which by the way, this was a huge change for me, coming from the more like from an, a more Israel black hat world to going to a place like Yeshiva University and seeing uh, or learning or understanding that whole world was uh, very mind opening, very very eye. So you needed to you needed to start using words like teleological and things like that. <laughs> you know, it, it it was interesting to me how uh, growing up with a certain mentality, I think people might look at at, at another uh, group within Judaism and and question or not really understand what they're about, um, but when you go to a place like Yeshiva University, and literally you can go at midnight, and the base members are packed with guys who are learning, and those same guys are up in the morning for chakras at 7.30, and they're also pre-med. I mean, it's, it's, it's an impressive thing. Inspiring. It's, it's, it is. So, um, either way, I, it was mind-opening for me, but uh, I spent four years, four years learning uh, at Yeshiva University. And uh, towards the end of my stint, I had a, uh, a couple of internships. My first one was actually at the OU, uh, working at, uh, at Parnassa Works, it was called at the time. Uh, 
things were really down in the economy, and the OU started a, uh, a pilot project to help put people back to work, get employers out um, to different communities. Uh, and I worked for uh, a very special man who taught me what it was actually uh, to be good to your employees. He knew I was, you know, a student just starting out, and uh, he bought me lunch every day. Kind of showed me, you know, this is how you should be treated. Um, to relative to some other jobs that I've had in the past, and won't get into that, where you can sometimes people who were your boss or managers were just not not nice to, to their employees and didn't treat them well, and that was always that always stuck with me. Um, it's very it's actually uh, he unfortunately passed away very suddenly one night. Um, I came into work and he had passed away, and it was um, it was it was uh, it was something that really taught, I learned a lot from that man. Um, Shelley Miller was his name. Um, so after he passed away, unfortunately, that uh, program was in flux. Um, so I needed to find a different internship. I ended up interning at the uh, Rabbinical Council of America, uh, which was the RCA. Yeah, the RCA. It was uh, it was uh, quite interesting. I, I helped them moderate their forums. They have a whole back end, and rabbis ask each other questions and share divrei Torah that they can use uh, in different communities, and uh, I found I really enjoyed that. Wait a second. You're saying that the rabbi doesn't come up with the divrei Torah himself? So, so Uh-oh. Sometimes Secrets are being let out here. Yeah, there's also, uh, there, interestingly enough, I found one of the most interesting parts of the back end of that website is the, uh, the joke section. Mm. You can imagine the, uh, the kind of jokes that are, uh, that are set up there. Well, that's important. Rabbis need to have good joke available for different occasions. It's always good for an opening, opening, getting an attention grabber, I think. So, uh, okay, so you go from the RCA, and then? Uh, and then, um, so, uh, I'll share a bit of a personal uh, story. So that, that, uh, that Hanukkah, the last year that I was, uh, I was living in Washington Heights, uh, I, I was coming home from Kolel and uh, listening to my iPod, and at the time you had the very clear... Uh, like the white uh, headphones people people listen to, and um, I was walking back from my car, um, and it was it, you know it, was, it gets dark early. It was Hanukkah, the fourth night of Hanukkah, and uh, a couple of guys jumped me for the iPod. Oh my goodness! Um, they didn't get the iPod. Uh, yeah, that's have, right. I still have the iPod. Okay, Rabbit Rockman, <laughs> but uh, expert in jujitsu, probably. Uh, no, I just I know how to run. Ah, okay. <laughs> No, uh, no, I, I, you know, honestly, it was Minash I was, uh, I was on my way to do a mitzvah to light Hanukkah candles, and uh, thank God, uh, nothing serious happened. I didn't get the iPod. I, my glasses broke, and, and nothing else. Like it could have been a lot worse. It was a Hanukkah miracle. Yes, a Hanukkah miracle. Uh, and after that, I, you know, I got, I got home. You know, I opened the door. And my wife's like, "Why are you late? You're late." And, like, you know, just got mugged. Sensitive. <laughs> so uh, I said, you know, she's like, we're out of here. We are not sticking around. So uh, I, I made a, 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 we actually discussed it, and our rule was we are only going to take a job somewhere warm. My wife is also from mm-hmm. Toronto. We're like, we're only going to, like, a warm climate. Mm-hmm. Now, we did have my oldest son at the time, uh, who was, it was uh, an infant uh, at that stage, but uh, I had tried out for jobs in Dallas, Texas, and uh, San Diego, San Francisco, and either the job didn't work out for me, like I didn't actually get the job, or I didn't want the job. It just it never worked out. Uh, and then uh, through a couple of family friends, um, I had heard 
that High Lifeline was looking to make a foray into Canada. Uh, and, you know, it sounded like an interesting opportunity. Um, I actually had a very close friend at the time who also had recently gotten engaged and unfortunately uh, was diagnosed with cancer. Um, so it was a little bit close to my heart. Uh, and I thought, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply for that apply for that job. Um, and uh, they wanted to pay me very little and work me very hard. And Welcome was, to the Jewish community. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I, was, I said, I'm your man. Um, so we moved back to Toronto because both of our families are from Toronto. And um, I, I learned the importance of being around family and, and having uh, your children being around their grandparents and uncles and aunts. I think it's really, it's a, it's a bracha if you can do it and it, it works out, then uh, it should, you should do it. So I did. Um, and how many years ago was that? Uh, it's funny enough, I just had my bar mitzvah. We moved back here wow. in 2006 on July 15th. Wow, okay, so. good timing. So so it's been 13 years at the helm of High Lifeline Canada? 13 years, and uh, at the time, High Lifeline wasn't even a sure thing. Like It was like me in an office by myself, uh, doing the tax receipts, going and visiting families in the hospital, arranging programming, recruiting volunteers, raising the funds, like answering the phones, everything, you know, and... and uh, I know why God created Blackberries because at the time, like I was running around everywhere, and I was the ability to check your email while you're on the go is like huge. Um, but high lifeline wasn't a short thing, and at the time, I um, I also applied to be a chaplain in the Canadian Armed Forces. Um, and the interesting thing about that is when you apply to be a chaplain, you any chaplain comes into the army with rank. Um, you come in with the rank of captain. Uh, so because of that, they have to do a lot of background checks on people, especially if you've been traveling, you've been to Israel and things like that. They want to make sure that you're, you are who you say you are, and, and you and you gain a certain amount of security clearance with that, uh, with with that uh, being an officer in the armed forces. So uh, it takes about a year to two years. At the time, it was taking there was a backlog. It took about a year to two years for them to uh, to actually have people. Uh, get through the process of joining the armed forces. Uh, so I applied and didn't know what was going to, you know, I didn't know what High Lifeline was going to be a short thing, and I thought, hey, I, I have smicha, this is an opportunity for me to actually use it. At High Lifeline, I, was, I wasn't really using any rabbinical sort of, uh, any, any, anything to do with my smicha, I was really um, more to do with, uh, I should mention, my master's degree in, in psychology, so it was much more to do, I found that much more useful. Uh, Fast forward two years later, um, High Lifeline starts going well, and that's a whole story in and of itself. I can get into that if you like. Um, and I, the Armed Forces says, hey, you're in. You can join. And I was like, I'm not really so interested now because I'm, High Lifeline was really a busy thing, and I didn't have time. Um, but they actually came back to me and said, you know, we don't have a lot of representation from the Jewish community. We'd love for you to, uh, to join up. And it takes so long to get, you know, you've already been approved, like, it would be a waste, so maybe consider it. And, and I did, and um, so today I'm also a chaplain in the Canadian Armed Forces Reserves, um, which basically means I go to the Army once a week, um, and one weekend a month, uh, two weeks a year, to, to um, support the soldiers in, in, a, in a variety of ways. But um, back to High Lifeline. Um, when Chalefan was just starting out, you know, one of one of the things 
that I found, one of the major challenges was that really no one knew what High Lifeline was. I mean, today, I walk into a room, and I always, this is the test I always do. When I walk into a room full of kids, whether it's a room at a camp or at, in a school and we're presenting or whatever, I, by a show of hands, who knows what High Lifeline it is or was. And at the t- in the early years, barely anyone raised their hand. Nowadays, we walk into a classroom or we walk into uh, any one of the amazing Jewish camps that exist here in Toronto and say, hey, does anyone know about Chai Lifeline? And, and a lot of the room raises their hands. So um, things have changed. But, but back then, we, we decided that we're going to uh, really the first time, the first major fundraising event that we did um, was about two years in. For the first two years, all we did was provide support to families. It was just integral that people understood the impact that High Lifeline can make and how the good, the good work that we do. Um, and then you can ask them to actually support it. Um, but at the time, there wasn't a lot of money in the bank account, and uh, we wanted to to we wanted to do a concert. We felt that doing something on a large scale will help get the word out. Uh, so we put. Uh, we made commitments of about $100,000, of which we didn't have at the time, uh, to Roy Thompson Hall and to various artists. Uh, and we said, you know, we're going to we're gonna pump through. And, and uh, uh, actually, our, uh, one of our board, our board members, uh, Israel Schachter, Yami Schachter, uh, was extremely uh, integral in making this, this event happen. He had done a few concerts. Um, he had just moved to Toronto, excuse me, and he had done a number of concerts for United Hatsala in Israel. And he really knew what he was doing. He said, you know, he pushed me. Morty, we got to do this. It's going to be amazing. We're going to get the word out about High Lifeline. We're going to raise a lot of money. And um, we set specific deadlines and goals. And thank God we met them. And I think we really knocked people's socks off at the show. The first show that we did um, was really exciting for people. People, it was a Chazana show uh, with Chazan Helfgott, Chazan Matzin, and Shlomo Simcha Safran, along with a 42-piece orchestra. It was uh, something that... Toronto really had not seen the likes of that kind of level of a Jewish concert show of sophistication and and just that a Chazana show could be enjoyable for people was um, very mind-opening to a lot of people. It sounds, as I hear you describe those early years, it almost sounds like a startup business, you know, but in, I guess, obviously the Jewish context, right? You're, you're talking about having to, you know, bootstrap at the beginning where you're doing all of the administrative tasks yourself. You're talking about also kind of having to go on a limb and take a risk and, and, and you know, do something big. Uh, do you think there are any similarities there? And do you kind of learn any things from, let's say, the business world and how you can implement those in the running of High Lifeline? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that very much it was very much a startup, like like any startup business. And um, one of the things that I find really helps me now when I'm dealing with perhaps some very successful people in our community on a fundraising level is I can understand for those guys who started those businesses and built them up, I really understand that mentality. I understand what it takes to, to give yourself completely over to something and just say, you know, we're going to make a difference. I, I wanted to make a difference for sick children and families across Canada, and we're going to start in Toronto and just stick to that mission, and whatever it takes to get there, we're going to do. Uh, and people who are with me are with me, and there's been a lot of very helpful people along the way and a lot of people who 
I can honestly say High Lifeline Canada wouldn't exist here in Toronto or uh, in Montreal or any of the cities, Edmonton, Ottawa. Um, our plan is to go out to Vancouver in, 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 the, next, uh, in, the, in the next six months and start, some, and, and start to work out something there. Um, without these incredible people who are just as passionate and just as giving and for the most part are just doing it out of the goodness of their heart, a lot of them aren't paid employees. Uh, and just doing things just because they, they care about these these children affected by serious illness in the community. So can you describe a little bit for people who may not be as familiar what High Lifeline does? I mean, I can speak personally. We were the recipients of, of High Lifeline's services, you know, had a couple of issues with, with kids that, that had sicknesses, nothing uh, nothing serious, thank God everything is taken care of. But, you know, it was the most amazing thing. We had a, a daughter who was in the hospital, uh, and, w- you know, both my wife and I had to be there. And, you know, there were volunteers from High Lifeline who were at the house, who were taking care of the other kids, who, you know, I came home and, you know, dishes were washed. And I was wondering, like, what is going on here? You know, it was just amazing. These people were volunteers uh, from the community, and we were really touched by it. So I have that. That's my own personal experience. But but I was wondering if you could kind of share a little bit about what the organization does and, and how it works and the volunteers who do the, the fine stuff that you, you do. Uh, yeah, sure. Thank you. And, and just cut me off if I end up talking too long and it ends up sounding like a boring commercial. I don't want that. Um, but uh, High Lifeline Canada provides support to three types of children. Uh, first are children affected by life-threatening illnesses such as cancer. Uh, the second is children affected by lifelong genetic diseases that don't affect the brain, muscular dystrophy, cerebral palsy. Uh, and third is children who have a parent that are dealing with a life-threatening illness. And Basically, those three, those three children uh, are affected by illness differently, and the illness affects the entire family differently. We take a very holistic approach, and we, we look at how somebody within the family context being sick is affecting every member of the family. And we have 24 year-round services that we provide, and those range from big brother and sister, financial aid, tutoring, uh, you name it, anything to get people through the day-to-day to more uh, awesome or, or wow, wow gifts like trips to, we have a camp for kids with cancer, a camp for kids with serious illnesses, trips to Disney World, trips to uh, San Diego. Depending on a variety of different factors, different families will qualify for different types of services. Um, but our most important service that we provide is called case management. Basically, that's one person who that family can reach out to and talk to, um, whether it's mom or dad or whoever is available within the family context and that person really comes to understand how the illness is affecting the family, the entire family and then will kind of create so to speak a prescription of social services so not, no this isn't a life saving but it is a social service saving so to speak uh, prescription that through High Lifeline Services we will provide all free of charge to a family in need. So for one family, um, a sick child being in the hospital, that means um, mom or dad might have to take off of work, so the family finances are constrained. Parents don't know where to turn. They're not sure how to tell their friends and family. Do they tell their friends and family? How should they be there for their kids? Do they tell their kids? Um, so we provide support to mom and dad on a financial level. On a, uh, we'll provide therapy to any, me- any, any member of that family, support groups so that they'll have other parents to talk to who might be dealing with similar types of situations. Um, the sick child themselves is missing a lot of school, so they'll need tutoring. They need extra attention. Mom and dad 
can't be there all the time. They have other kids at home. So we have big brothers and sisters that will extend not just to uh, the sick child, but to the siblings of the sick child to give them extra attention, tutoring. Um, and then, obviously, when a child's going through something so profound and so tough, uh, we like to spoil them a little bit. And we have programs like a wow gift where a kid can choose any gift he wants, uh, you know, up to the tune of three or $4,000, an iPod or uh, a computer. And you know, a lot of people might even question, like, why would you know, why why does a child need that? And I and I promise you, when a child's going through something that profound, there's nothing that a parent won't do to make their kid happy. And you know, even just the medication or getting giving a shot, just seeing that pain and anguish on a child's face and being able to turn that frown upside down makes all the difference. And I don't think I think people are are, are willing to to support that in a meaningful way. Um, our flagship program, Camp Simcha, I mentioned it earlier, is a camp for kids with cancer, um, and Camp Simcha Special, a camp for kids with lifelong genetic diseases that don't affect the brain. Uh, and these camps are incredible places where you can order whatever you want at any meal. There's helicopter rides, hot air balloon rides. I mean, we go really above and beyond for these kids for those two weeks, and I myself have been in hospital rooms in the dead of winter, and there are pictures up from Camp Simcha. And these kids are looking forward to it all year, creates a community of counselors and other campers and an opportunity for them to really connect with these people in a meaningful way so that nobody should have to know, but when you go through cancer treatment, there's a lot of ups and downs, there's wins, there's losses, things are going well, things are not going well, and when you have a group of people that you can that can rally behind you, there's nothing more powerful than that, and that's something that only a, a, a camp simple can really help to provide some of these kids, and um, that sort of over-the-top theme is something that we at High Life Line take very seriously and we, we put it into all kinds of areas. So when, when a family will come to, let's say, we'll provide once a month we have a family event for families to come to because they don't have the money or the time to plan an event, but they need that time together to be together as a family and just have a good time, whether that's going to Wonderland and having, you know, having a good time as a family or um, we actually have an event coming up in a couple of weeks uh, at, at uh, Cottage Day where we have a cottage that a, a very generous donor will, will give and we have about 400 people who come we do horseback riding and hot air uh, we're going to try to do a hot air balloon depending on the weather um, but horseback riding, a barbecue, there's swimming there's boating, just an opportunity for families to come and we plan the whole thing they just have to show up so they don't have to pay anything and it's just an opportunity for them to reconnect as a family and if they don't want to they have an opportunity to connect with other families that are also dealing with serious illnesses. And um, these are the kinds of that, that kind of over-the-top theme, we just kind of really try to take care of everything. So we'll give tickets to a basketball game. We don't give the tickets on the you know 500 level at the back. We try to give really good seats. If we have a connection or a contact, we'll introduce a child to a player. Like, we'll really try and go above and beyond for these kids because they're going through so much, and we really want, we just want to make their lives a little bit better while they're Wow, that's amazing. So I guess what I'm hearing from you here is about this perspective that I didn't know about, this over-the-top, as you've described it. You're saying kind of the reason for it is that it's basically giving the kids something to look forward to so much so that it is extending their lives, so to speak. Like, it's it's that thing, whether it's Camp Simcha or whatever, uh, that kind of gets them through it. If it was just, you know, going to the Jays game, that's a lot of fun, but but having these over-the-top experiences is what kind of gets the kids through it. Is that kind of what you're saying? Um, I, I think that's part of it. They definitely, it definitely makes them, it gives them something to look forward to and it's exciting. Uh, 
but I will say that sometimes it happens last minute too, and it's not necessarily something to look forward to, but it's just they're going through so much, whether you're fighting their illness or dealing with whatever they have to deal with, if we can give them a little bit of extra joy, a little bit of extra awesomeness, we're going to do that. It's really, it's, it's taking this idea of chesed, of doing acts of kindness, and really just taking it to the, to pushing it to the top level, to the top degree, and really making sure that it's not just done, but it's done as best as we possibly can do it for these families. As, you know, as, as a society, people can argue that often you're judged by how well you take care of the least the people who are least able to take care of themselves. And for a short period, not for a long period, but very often for a short period, these are families and children that they just have so much going on, it's hard for them to manage their daily life. It's hard for them to, to go through everything that they're going through without having someone hold their hand. And we do that, we hold their hand, but then we also take it a step further and really try to just give them something over the top that they can look forward to, that they can have, that's just amazing. Huh. And it's, it's something that really goes through the whole organization, not, not just here in Toronto, but in Montreal, and then you know, with our partners in the U.S. and, and really all over, all over the world. So can you take us through the mind of a volunteer, um, you know, paint a little bit of a picture and, and maybe some of the, you know, maybe even have an anecdote or a story about somebody who, who came and, and, and volunteered his or her time, but really found that it was useful and meaningful for them? Uh, sure. You know, it's interesting because I myself make a point of uh, calling once a week a couple of the volunteers who really shown through that week, and just just saying thank you because I think like any donor who makes a donation to the organization, volunteers are donating. They're just donating their time, and I think that that's really important to for for us as an organization. We we value that, and there's really if you think about it, time is one of the few things that everybody really needs. So when somebody's donating their time, it's even more valuable than dollars. Um, High Lifeline is blessed. Uh, to have over 600 volunteers in our database. And this is a database that we regularly purge. Um, and it's something that I think speaks to how much High Lifeline is actually doing on a day-to-day basis. Uh, and, and, and we don't actually have to pay for it, so it's not costing money. People, you know, for, people have a, a tendency to think that High Lifeline um, is raising a, a lot of money. We are raising a lot of money. Um, we're doing really good things with that. And one of the ways that we're able to do that and leverage those dollars is through volunteers, is through 600 volunteers. You know, as a young person, I will say personally, I, I, I wasn't a volunteer. And um, so when I meet these people, these young people in particular, but really people of all ages from across the community who give up their time, I'm always inspired to see the kind of people who are willing to give back to their community and give back to those who are less, less capable. And uh, I will say that oftentimes, I shouldn't say every time, that I encourage somebody to volunteer, uh, they always come back and thank me because they always end up getting. And um, I think a great story that I have is uh, a number of years ago there was a young man. Uh, I don't know that you want me to say his name, so I'm not going to. But we'll call him. Uh, we'll call him Wish for our purposes. And uh, he he uh, he he was a big brother to a, a boy who unfortunately passed away. Um, and I should say that. Uh, for the most part, high lifeline children don't pass away. There's, um, cancer in children is actually uh, uh, a very different disease than it is in adults, and 
the survival rate is over 80%. So it's really a treatment that really is, is tough and really hard on kids, but there's a higher survival rate. I mean, yes, um, it's, a it's still very serious, though. Um, but unfortunately, this young man passed away, and um, he was inspired to do something in memory of, of, of this young man, Moish. Uh, and he said to me, he says, you know what? Me and my brother, uh, we just started a business, but I think I think we can raise money in, in memory. We're going to start a fund in memory of this young man. And um, he, this, this uh, Moish was only about 20 years old or so at the time, maybe 22, excuse me. And uh, he... He made a very audacious uh, uh, goal for himself. He wanted to raise a hundred thousand dollars, and you know, twenty-year-old uh, going out and raising a hundred thousand dollars—that's that's a big feat. Uh, but uh, they quickly, him and his brother, quickly showed me that no, it can be done. And you know, in Dover Ome the Mayor Rotson, these guys really wanted to to do something in memory and and. They had very clear direction. Um, it was actually at the um, at the height of the Rob Ford uh, scandal, and they he could have used High Lifeline Services. You know what? Rob Ford actually showed up to the event. Oh wow! Um, he came to the event. They invited him. Not only did he come to the event, uh, which was really at the time, I, I, it might have been a bit of a PR move for him, um, but he sent a check later on. Now, he didn't have to do that. Wow. Nobody would have. Uh, you know, and it wasn't a small check. It was for, for a couple thousand dollars, so it was very generous of him. Uh, uh, but regardless, uh, they ended up uh, raising that, that money. Um, but one thing that happened was, uh, I guess when you're an entrepreneur and you're young, kind of fly by the seat of your pants, they forgot to confirm the day of the event with the parents of the young child who passed away. And they ended up accidentally... The, the parents weren't able to be there. Uh, but the parents still felt close and were very happy that, that they were doing this in honor of High Lifeline, I mean, in honor of their son for High Lifeline, um, that they sent uh, mom, sent her brother. So her brother has a different, obviously has a different last name than her. She's married. She, her, her, her last name is, uh, was one thing, and uh, her brother obviously um, never changed her last, never changed his last name. I mean, he was at the event and really appreciated that we did it. Uh, and I would say about four or five months later, uh, I got a phone call from uh, Moish's brother, actually. He said, you know, we're entrepreneurs. We're starting this business. We don't have health insurance. Uh, and I need a root canal. Is there somebody you know who, you know, maybe through High Lifeline, you can make an introduction, maybe, look, you know, maybe give me a better price because i got to pay cash for this. It needs to be done. Um, root, root canals are expensive, I think. That's yeah, also the point. Yeah, yeah, root okay. canals are quite expensive. And uh, you know, maybe, maybe you know somebody who you can make an introduction to. Um, and I said, sure. And I, I made an introduction to a certain dentist that I knew. Um, and that dentist uh, made a referral and uh, to, to, to a certain, um, I guess it's an endodontist. Yeah, right. Um, to an endodont endodontist. And uh, Moish's brother... Um, actually goes to the endodontist, um, sits down in the chair, and in walks the brother or the uncle, the uncle. of this young child who passed away and uh, ended up giving him his treatment for free wow. because he was so touched. And, you know, I, 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 I'm a, a true believer in what goes around comes around. And really, these, these two really, they, they didn't have any uh, ulterior motive. They just wanted to do something nice in memory of... Of, uh, of this young man who passed away, 
and um, they ended up, he ended up, I mean, this was a very, um, I guess, a very real, very tangible, tangible way of, uh, of, of them receiving something back. But almost every single time that I encourage somebody to volunteer again, they, they always say to me, I thought I was giving and I thought I was going to uh, help somebody, but I actually ended up getting so much more from the process and from meeting these kids who are going through so much or being involved with these families and it's uh, it's a very it's a very powerful thing and uh, I'm always in, I mean we're always looking to recruit new volunteers so um, shameless plug if anybody's looking for something Corecast listeners if you're looking for volunteer opportunities High Life on Canada absolutely we're definitely uh, we're definitely looking so uh, so yeah that's beautiful uh, what um, it, maybe you can also paint a picture for us of some of the challenges that you might have. Obviously, High Lifeline sounds like if there's an organization out there that is kind of just seems to do such amazing, beautiful things, I think High Lifeline certainly has a, a sterling reputation, but I'm sure it's not without its challenges. Are there any challenges that you can uh, kind of raise with us and, and talk about and, and and how you, how you navigate those? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think one of our biggest challenges is being a true community organization. And I think the community at large, uh, you know, obviously you have your Orthodox community, uh, you have the, the secular, broader Jewish community, uh, and it's a very large, diverse place. And, uh, you know, not to speak uh, disparagingly, it is close to the three weeks um, about the Jewish people, but sometimes the different um, sects don't see eye to eye on every issue, and um, I think because of that, High Lifeline gets pulled in a lot of different directions. Uh, our funding comes very—we have a very strong support in, in the uh, in the Orthodox community, uh, less so in the not not Orthodox community. Um, but the people that we provide support to generally reflect the overall Jewish community in Toronto, which. Um, suffice to say is is overwhelmingly a sec coming from the secular community so uh, it's an interesting dichotomy where I think that people don't people don't even realize that we're supported very much by the Orthodox community for the general community and, and when people hear that they're kind of taken aback and they're like wow they're not they're actually not used to hearing that because I think in some cases and I'm not going to speak about a partic any particular charity, but in some cases, sometimes it's seen as the opposite of uh, the from or Orthodox community being supported by other um, parts of the community. Right, I've heard that. I've heard that from more general community organizations that the Orthodox community isn't as participatory in in fundraising. But you're saying here it's the reverse. Yeah, which uh, which I find is very interesting. Um, but that comes with challenges, and and being a community organization. Uh, things come up. Uh, obviously, everything within the confines of High Lifeline has to be kosher and Shomer Shabbat and things of that nature. Uh, but there are questions that come up where we have volunteers who are completely secular, who may, maybe they want to go visit a completely secular child on Shabbos, right? Do we encourage that? Do we not? Of course, I mean, we don't. But that's a question that that that, that arises. Do uh, in, in, in by the same token. If you're up, if, if you're up in a room and, and the family doesn't necessarily keep kosher uh, and they ask, 
hey, do we do we want to? Can you get us a sandwich from downstairs? Well, well, what do you do? Right? Uh, now I think uh, partially due to High Lifeline's efforts at Sick Kids, at least there's there are kosher sandwiches in the uh, in the uh, in the cafeteria at Sick Kids, um, but for many years there wasn't. And you know, what do you do in those situations? So it it, it does. Uh, Put us in an interesting, in inter- interesting situations that do arise, um, and you know they're, they're they're for discussion. I don't want to get into anything too controversial here, but uh, they are they are discussions that we have internally uh, on a constant basis. Right, I'm sure. And what about from a managerial perspective? I mean, you're the the leader, right? The executive director of an organization. It sounds like you have 600 volunteers. I'm sure you have uh, paid staff as well. How do you operate that, and how do you navigate the challenges that come with you know leader of a large organization? You know, it's funny. I never imagined starting out at High Lifeline that it would be where it is today and you know honestly I can look at the steps and thank God every step of the way completely from Menashe Mayan like really but um, very often I'm put into places where I had no idea I would go and, and whether that's um, I was describing to you that concert that we do uh, and now it's our 12th or 13th year that we'll be doing it uh, you know having to understand how to uh, negotiate with the union like who thought when you when you're starting out and you want to help sick children that you end up having to negotiate with unions and artists and agents and halls and things like that? Like it really puts you. It's really an opportunity for me to learn all these amazing new businesses and experiences. So I, I really enjoy that. Um, I think uh, people are people, and certainly uh, everybody comes with with, uh, with everything comes with challenges and. Uh, Managing a staff uh, comes with challenges, and, and in particular when you're across the country and, and trying to, you have people in, in different cities and things like that is certainly a challenge. Um, but I, I try to look at things from a, a perspective of uh, I want people to grow, I want people to have opportunities to grow, I want people to come to work, um, particularly at a place like High Lifeline where it's, we're dealing with such sad situations that I'd like it to be an upbeat place, a happy place. Um, where people are excited to be there. Um, there's opportunity for people to grow. There's op- opportunity for people um, to go and, and, and whether it's learn new things or um, advance in their mm-hmm. own career, um, to understand that there they might be a small piece, like somebody who might work at you know front of the house, at, you know answering the phones is a small piece of the overall organization. But for them to understand that each person is an important piece of that entire larger wheel and without everything working smoothly um, if you don't understand how your small part here in Canada but then your Canada is a smaller part of a larger network of support services across the world uh, and to know that you're a part of something much larger than yourself I think speaks speaks to people a lot uh, and then we we have certain things that we do for, for our staff that we make sure um, I want people to have an opportunity to do something on our time that helps them grow. And Clyde Lifeline always ends up getting back in some way. We've had uh, somebody go for photography classes uh, in the middle of, of uh, in the middle of the workday, but then come back and shoot photos of our events so that we're able to, you know, and they're really awesome photos. It's, uh, it's, it's, I find that when people have an opportunity to learn, they always want to give back and it's, it's, a, it's a real opportunity for High Lifeline as well. 
That's a really great philosophy. I think Google does that as well, I think, right? They give people um, time, and maybe in a little bit of a different way, but they give people a percentage of their week that they're allowed to do whatever they want, and a lot of Google services uh, have been created, I think, on that basis. I'm curious, um, how do you decide which events you're going to do, the, the, the larger events, and I mean mainly the concerts or what have you. I'm just curious, you know, how, I think maybe you had uh, Art Garfunkel one year, so you went from Hazanas one year to Art Garfunkel the next year. Like, how do you go through the process of deciding, you know, which acts you're going to hire and how they are, you know, going to hopefully attract an audience? Uh, well, I think that that speaks a lot to that fine line that I was sharing with you in regards to uh, what appeals to one segment of the community might offend the other segment of the community or, or, or what appeals to another part of the community is just not interesting to other... It, it really it really depends. So that pendulum for us uh, is, is kind of swings and, and different years will do different things keeping in mind uh, who's going to come out to a, a particular type of event and ensuring that we're speaking there, we're talking to, to them, um, perhaps not every year, but over the course of a number of years through different events or through different things um, that they that every sect of our community can feel like they can be a part of High Lifeline in some meaningful way. Um, and the concert's actually one of the ways that we've done that. Uh, the last couple of years, we've actually moved away from, uh, from music and into magic. And the reason for that is that we found that um, when people were coming to an event for music, they either liked the artist or they didn't like the artist. Magic seems to have this insatiable appetite where people want to bring their kids, they bring families, they just want to come out um, not just and not just buy two tickets. They might buy four or six tickets and bring the whole family to a, to a particular show. Um, because really, you don't have to be a certain age to enjoy. Like young kids probably don't enjoy classical music, so they're not coming to an event like that. But they might come to an event where someone's performing some awesome magic trick, and uh, so that's really uh, that's been helpful for us. And I would imagine you also don't have to be part of any religious uh, community. Everybody likes magic, right? Yeah, I mean, it does come with its challenges. Uh, there's certain 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 shows or certain whenever you hire a performer uh, who's going to speak on behalf of the organization uh, you have to be so careful because what they say reflects on you and they don't necessarily share your values they might have a certain show that they uh, they put on and for the most part it might be family friendly uh, even to certain sects of our community but not to others and it's it's a real challenge to make sure that that stays uh, on the straight and narrow uh, while still appealing to as many people as possible. So, okay, so last question now. If we, we were going to um, look at things from a little bit of a larger perspective, what do you think are uh, next five years, ten years, what are the things that you want to do for, for High Lifeline? And maybe even as well, what types of things do you think for the, the Jewish community as a whole, what types of services do you think that we, we need? I know that's a broad question, but I guess what I mean is, where do you think the community is going, and how do you think that you would like to address it, and potentially other organizations as well? Um, that is a very broad question, but uh, uh, short answer is, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to take High Lifeline Canada national, and uh, as a Jewish organization, uh, 
providing support services uh, to a, in a health-related manner, I don't think that there's another national Jewish organization doing that. So I'm really excited about that challenge, and, and um, part of that is, is actually um, going on in, into Vancouver. So in um, the next five years, I do see something a little bit stronger, hopefully starting out in Vancouver, um, kind of helping support Jewish communities in the West Coast. Um, I find it interesting, if, if you look at some of the data from, uh, I read an interesting article about why does uh, Rogers, why are there, sorry, why are there so few cell phone companies in Canada? And part of the, uh, the reason is because the land mass is just so great versus the populations that it's very hard for the companies to create infrastructure. So um, one of the things that I'm looking at is how do I create infrastructure that's meaningful and powerful that can then reach out to a broader base of communities that might be around it. So uh, a community like Calgary or Edmonton might not necessarily need a full-time Chi Lifeline worker there. Um, they might be close enough to Vancouver that Vancouver could then provide some support services to them um, in it, and then perhaps build relationships with volunteers or people out there to, to be able to provide that support. But that's certainly a challenge that I have, uh, I'm looking, looking towards. Um, in terms of answering your question of where 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 the community's headed, um, you know, for us, we're getting two or three calls a week here in Toronto. Uh, we can barely keep up. We're 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 managing, but it's you know, with every family that we add, and we don't add staff or case managers, as I was describing to you, that person who really builds that relationship with the family, um, it makes it hard to maintain that level of service, that customized support prescription that I described earlier in the in the podcast um, so it's 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 a huge challenge to keep in to, to maintain that um, but we need to go in-house um, so as a community organization um, we're providing let's say we're arranging specific uh, a big brother and sister um, would be going out to visit people in their homes uh, ideally I'd like to take that in-house and I like to bring those kind of programs into a center, into a place where people can come to. Um, it represents a certain amount of liability for an organization to have, um, though we, are, we have insurance and we do our background checks and we work with the volunteers and we know every single one of our volunteers, um, it does represent a certain amount of liability on the part of the organization to be sending out volunteers across the city into different homes and different situations. So um, bringing that in-house uh, for us is, is something that I'm looking towards doing. Um, and doing that, something like that across Canada. So, Okay, it sounds like you've got big big dreams, and it's a fantastic organization. I actually lied. I want to ask you one more quick question, and that is, what is it about the Jewish people that we create organizations like High Lifeline? I don't know. You're in hospitals. Maybe you see that there would be, like, the equivalent of High Lifeline for the Uzbeki community or, you know, High Lifeline Ukraine or something like that, but I'm not aware of it. Um, is that something that you see that that High Lifeline is unique uh, or is one of the unique organizations? And what is it about the Jewish people that makes us so special that we look out for one another in this way? Um, yeah, I would say that I've gotten comments from a number of different members of different communities in the hospital context on how can we do what your community does? How does the you know, the Indian community, or um, I even actually met with uh, some members of the Muslim community who wanted to do something similar um, to what High Lifeline does in their community. How do we do that? How do we get that started? 
Uh, I can't speak for whether they actually have or haven't. I haven't come across them again. Um, but I will say that uh, being a part of the Jewish community, it's certainly a, a kinship, and there's a certain closeness that I think we feel for each other um, that allows us in positive and negative ways uh, to do things for each other and be there for each other and perhaps even say things to each other that you might not say to a perfect stranger but you feel comfortable saying to another uh, another member of the community and I, I think it's a beautiful thing uh, I think it's something it truly does not for sure on the level of High Lifeline does not exist in any other community I can say that I'm constantly looking out for uh other partners or other people that are doing similar types of work. And yeah, there's portions of it in, in, you know, there's a big brother and sister organization, there's a Make-A-Wish organization, there's um, all different kinds of organizations, but there's no organization that has all of that under one roof to provide that support to children and families suffering from the effects of serious illness. Morty Rothman, thank you so much for coming on the Corecast. High Lifeline is a fantastic organization. If any of the listeners of the Corecast want to find out more about High Lifeline, they can, I'm sure, visit the High Lifeline website. Um, and really, you should continue doing the fantastic service that you're doing for the Jewish community. Thank you. Well, that's our show for today. I know, so hard to say goodbye. So if you enjoyed the Corecast, you can find an archive of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on the COR website at cor.ca. See you next time on the Corecast.